A star-spanning saga of ancient magic and deep science, vividly told by a modern master, says Dave Gibbons. Kelly Sue DeConnick states, the kind of epic you crave, both noun and adjective. And that doesn't even quite capture Liam Sharp's astonishing scope and vision. There's magic in these pages. Matt Fraction calls it jaw-dropping and epic and massive. He also says this is a gorgeous and incredible and massive swing for the stars that declares his ambitions have taken him to some exciting and undiscovered territories. Bravo, congrats, cheers, and exhale. This is glorious. What are they all talking about? Liam Sharp's upcoming six-issue series, Starhenge, from Image Comics. Liam himself says of the series, I wanted to do my own Image comic for 30 years. I wanted to do a Merlin comic for even longer than that. This is a culmination of so many dreams and ambitions of mine finally being realized, and that makes it the most exciting and personal comic project I've ever done. I can't wait to see it on the shelves. It's also been described as a mashup of the Green Knight and Terminator with all the Arthurian legends, time travel, and killer robots that entails, plus Merlin, Magic, and Mayhem. The first issue debuts in comic shops on July 6th, with final order cut off on June 13th. So now's the time to tell your retailers to order you a copy. Welcome to another episode of The Comic Source. I'm your host, Jace. This is your new Comics Wednesday episode for June 22nd, 2022. A lot of books to get through, 16 books, so I'm just going to dive right in. Before I do, I will mention that if you're looking for DC, that's on the DC Spotlight that comes out every Tuesday. Just remember, DC Spotlights have spoilers. As opposed to this episode I'm recording right now for you, New Comics Wednesday, where I'm going to talk about these books and what I liked about them, but won't necessarily get into plot points or cliffhangers or actual story beats or any of that sort of thing. So again, if you want to check out DC, go listen to the spotlight from yesterday. And uh, I will talk about some of the previous issues of some of these series to kind of give some context, uh, but no spoilers for the books that are actually out today. So with that being said, I'm going to kick it off with Kaiju Score. This is the next to last issue. It's written by James Patrick. Rem Brew is the artist. Francesco Sagala on colors. Dave Sharp on letters. We got some hints last issue that the people that hired this crew to literally go inside a giant Kaiju and steal gold and priceless treasures and whatnot may not really be on the up and up. They may have ulterior motives. They may want something else than the actual treasure. What that is, we find out in this issue. Um, One of the things that's really great about this, and it's the same thing that I loved about the first uh, Kaiju score series, was that it mashed up two genres that you typically don't see blended together, right? This idea of kaiju, giant monsters, and heist stories. And in the first one, it really was pretty balanced. Um, 
and it did really well. And so I'm not surprised there's a sequel. However, if I have any complaints about this one, it's that there's not that much of the, the heist in terms of detail. I mean, a lot of times you think of heist story, you know, the fun part is seeing how they, they plan everything and how they're going to pull it off and that sort of thing. And um, there's not a lot of that in this one, more so in the first series. Again, it doesn't make the series bad. It's just less a mashup of the two genres of kaiju and heist and more like a, a straight up crime noir. And we haven't even really got any kaiju yet. Uh, although I suppose in the first one, we didn't get it until, you know, last two issues maybe. So, uh, but I mean, we're, we're already getting to the last issue and we haven't gotten too much kaiju in this one yet either. So, you know, if you're looking for kind of a repeat of the, the first one, you really love the first one. This is not that. That's not to say it's bad. I'm really enjoying it, actually. Um, same artist, Rembrew, who did the first series. So the art is excellent. It's a little stylized and uh, the colors are, are very bright and vibrant. And James Patrick is giving us a very interesting character drama. And there's definitely tension and suspense and action and all that. Um, but again, you're, you know, if you're going into it looking for some real clever heist story, this is not that, but it's still uh, still very much worth your time. So I do recommend it. Big fan of uh, what Aftershock's doing, as always. Uh, up next, we have Aerosmith. This is chapter six of Behind Enemy Lines. Kurt Busick and Carlos Pacheco are the creators. Busick on words, Pacheco on art. Jose Rafael Fonterez does the inks. Jose Villarubia on colors. Comicraft's Tyler Smith and Jimmy Betancourt on letters and design. Uh, this is the final issue of this second arc. They already have a third arc planned. However, it's not coming anytime soon, unfortunately. Uh, there is a, a little bit of a, an essay in the back from Kurt Busick. He talks about... The next volume, uh, Beyond Borders, it sounds really awesome. This one doesn't end in any sort of way in terms of, you know, kind of a conclusion or resolution of any stuff that's going on with Fletcher Aerosmith or Guy, the royal bastard, who's his partner as they travel behind enemy lines. Uh, very much, it doesn't necessarily end on a cliffhanger either. It sets up things for the uh, the next volume and we saw the continuation of the story that was going on here where Guy and Aerosmith are trying to rescue a princess that's from the kind of the world of the fairies. So uh, because of health issues, Kurt Busiek is having some, some uh, horrible migraines and is waiting for um, a specialist that he can go and see. We all know, I talked about it on the podcast, that Carlos Pacheco had surgery for um, a spinal fracture that he had that was impairing his ability to walk. And obviously we wish him a speedy recovery and he's on his road to a full recovery, but it's going to take like eight to 12 months before he is, uh, is back to normal, I guess you'd say, or, or recovered. So he's not necessarily going to be, you know, sitting at a drawing board or drawing table anytime soon. That said, these creators do seem committed to getting back to the story. And it's certainly, I think, I hope, and I'm sure they do as well, that it's not going to be anywhere near as long as uh, between the first volume of uh, Aerosmith uh, and, and the next one, you know, the, the first one uh, 
so smart in their fine uniforms uh, was, I think it came out in 2012. So 10 years uh, between, hopefully we get the next one a lot sooner. That being said, uh, the first volume and Kurt mentions this in his uh, little essay in the back, his text piece, the first one's available in a hardcover right now with a bunch of extra behind the scenes sort of stuff. This one, if you haven't read any of it behind enemy lines, is going to be available in hardcover later this year. And Kurt also talked about some other Aerosmith projects that uh, may hold us over until the, the next volume. So if you're not familiar with Aerosmith, it's kind of an alternate history where magic exists and the world sort of evolved in a different way because of that. And this uh, story is set, I, I think, around World War I times uh, and there are people, rather than flying in planes, they have little pet dragons that are able to share their ability to, to fly. And that's how they fight. And there's a lot of magical weapons and whatnot. Instead of being called the United States, it's Columbia because it was discovered by Columbus. Uh, the United Kingdom is still called Albion. You may recognize that term from uh, the legend of King Arthur. Uh, and there are a lot of legends like King Arthur and Charlemagne and other uh, myths European myths that are uh, mentioned in this final volume. So a lot of seeds planted for things to come. It's a very, very uh, fanciful story and really, really good. The art by Carlos Pacheco. I think it's the best thing he's ever done. And I don't know if that's because it's creator owned or uh, if it just suits his aesthetic, but this mashup of this sort of uh, older um, aesthetic in terms of fashion and, um, backgrounds and whatnot, you know, uh, kind of a more, what's the word I'm searching for? Uh, like not necessarily old fashioned, but, you know, more agrarian kind of society, more quaint, um, mashed up with, you know, old fashioned, um, world war one type military uniforms and whatnot. It's just, the aesthetic is, is gorgeous. Uh, line work, very fine. Uh, it's really a great book. I don't hear anywhere near enough people talking about this book since it's come back. It's been absolutely fantastic. I, I missed Aerosmith the first time around, went back, read the first volume after I read the first issue of the second volume. Uh, and I'm, I'm a big fan. I'm, I'm going to anxiously await that third volume. I'd be really excited uh, when it comes out. So, uh, all right. Up next, we have Amazing Spider-Man number three. This is written by Zeb Wells. John Romita Jr. is the penciler. Scott Hanna is on inks. We've got Marcio Menez on colors and Joe Caramagna on letters. So we saw at the, uh, the end of last issue that Tombstone had revealed his plans to Peter and then gave the order for Pete to be killed. Uh, as we know, Marvel's not about to kill the amazing Spider-Man. So obviously Pete's going to get out of that. Um, and as the issue progresses, it's really an action packed issue. It's Pete's like fighting almost the whole way through. Um, and it, that leads to a really fast paced issue that was over before I knew it. Uh, but what's great is right at the end, Zeb Wells throws this twist in there that I certainly didn't see coming and was really fun and interesting. And he's also pulling on some seeds that uh, Nick Spencer actually had planted in his run of amazing Spider-Man, at least in as far as, the relationship between Robbie Robertson and uh, and Tombstone goes like what their relationships like. I mean, obviously they have a lot of history. 
that's been built in from the beginning of Tombstone debuting. Uh, and then obviously that relationship was built up by J.M. J. DeMatteis and Sal Buscema in uh, Spectacular Spider-Man back in the 90s. So that has continued to be explored and Nick Spencer explored it. Zibwells is picking up those threads as well. So cool issue. Nothing mentioned about Pete's recent past that's caused his fallout between everybody else. Again, I hope Marvel doesn't drag that mystery out too long in this uh, volume of Amazing Spider-Man. If they are going to drag it out a little longer for, I don't know, marketing or whatever, I guess I think it'll boost sales. I, I, I mean, here's the thing. I don't think it will. Like, people are going to buy Amazing Spider-Man because it's Amazing Spider-Man. So uh, all you're going to do is annoy people if you don't reveal what happened. But on the plus side, in their defense, at least they're not bringing it up and shoving it in our face. Like it's it's not even really mentioned uh, or it's not mentioned at all in this issue. I think for the first time, obviously it was mentioned in issue uh, one and two. I can't remember if it was in three. Did I say this was issue three of Amazing Spider-Man? It's issue four. <laughs> I think I said three, but yeah, this is issue four. Uh, but anyway, I think it's been mentioned um, in every previous issue. And when you bring it up constantly and put it in your face and don't resolve it, that that's when it gets annoying. So if they want to just let it simmer, just please don't bring it up. But uh, I do hope we get the answers actually sooner than later. So anyway, uh, the art, I'm not really going to, I mean, anybody who listens to this podcast for a long period of time knows I'm not a John Romita Jr. fan at all. I don't. I think Tombstone looks really weird. Um, I, I will give plenty of props to Romita for his, his storytelling and the transitions from panel to panel. But the actual aesthetic, the actual line work, uh, I don't enjoy. So, uh, but I am enjoying this. Amazing Spider-Man series. Glad it's back to being a little more um, positive and feel feels more super heroic. Not a big downer or chore to read it. So, uh, okay. Up next, we have Bloodstained Teeth. This is <laughs> number three of Bloodstained Teeth. It's from uh, writer creator Christian Ward. The art is by co-creator Patrick Reynolds. Colors by Heather Moore. Letters by Hassan Atzman Elhow. Uh, we get a little more context into Sloan as he continues to try to hunt down all the different people that he's turned into vampires, you know, the vampire council, the firstborn council has said that if he doesn't clean up his mess, because he's not supposed to be turning just anybody into vampires. If he doesn't go out there and kill all the people that he's turned into vampires, they're going to kill him. So uh, we certainly see in this particular issue, kind of the cold blooded nature of Sloan now he doesn't care about anybody but himself, uh, or maybe that's not 100% true because there are some hints or seeds planted in this issue that maybe there might be at least one person out there, uh, human or vampire, I won't spoil, um, that he actually cares about. Uh, probably doesn't care about that person or vampire as much as he cares about himself, but at least it's bringing some context and not just making him this one-dimensional character who uh, you can predict his motive that he's always going to do what's best for himself. So uh, the art is fantastic as it's been throughout. And what really makes it shine is this incredible color choices that Heather Moore makes. I mean, again, you think vampires and this sort of dark crime noirish story about a vampire going around killing people, uh, that it's going to be a lot of blacks and browns and grays 
dark blues, but instead we're getting reds and pinks and bright blue, bright orange, bright green, like all these bright colors. And it's, it's such a different aesthetic, but yet it works the, like the, the way she makes the colors pop off the page rather than making it feel um, kind of bright and fun and happy. It, it, it actually suits this sense of dread that you feel in the book, this constant feeling of threat that the characters that Sloan is, is hunting or needs to kill are, are under. It's so interesting to me the way that she makes that work, because again, normally you would think, you know, bright colors, horror book, it, it it's incongruous, right? It doesn't, it doesn't fit, but she makes it work. It's, I, I'm so impressed with her color work. It's, it's absolutely fantastic. So um, it's a very fast paced story as well. So give Christian Ward, who most people know for his art, a lot of credit for keeping this uh, feeling like a runaway train. Uh, the only downside to that is it's over so quickly each month when I read it and I want more immediately, which is uh, always a sign of a really great book. So kudos to uh, the whole creative team. Um, the visceral line work from Patrick Reynolds too, I have to mention once again, because um, it's so great as a framework for those wonderful colors that uh, Heather's putting down on the page. Uh, okay. Up next, another image book. I hate this place from writer Kyle Starks. Uh, he's also listed as creator, co-creator, Artem Toplin. Uh, he's also the artist. We have Lee Luffridge on colors, Pat Brosso on letters. Now I couldn't talk too much about what was going on because I didn't want to spoil the first issue. I'll talk more in detail about it in the second issue here. So we have this gay couple, uh, these lesbians, not only are they lesbians that have inherited, one of them has inherited their aunt's farm in the Midwest. And we know how a conservative uh, middle America can be. So, you know, they're, first of all, they're women. So that's strike one. And then they're lesbians and that's strike two. And then they're an interracial couple and that's strike three. So they got a lot of things stacked against them. They're used to having to deal with adversity. That being said, they move into this farmhouse and find out that it's haunted by these ghosts at night. And the only place they're safe is in the actual house. And the, uh, the woman who it was niece to uh, uh, the previous owners, they find it a, a cassette tape uh, or a VHS tape, I should say that they play and it gives the explanation. Hey, you have to stay here. Otherwise the ghosts will, I think they'll leave if I remember correctly and they'll start attacking surrounding places. Uh, they're safe as long as they stay in the house at night. Don't go into the woods. There's a, and she apologizes. I'm sorry to have to, you know, have done this to you. We couldn't take it anymore. That's why we left you this place. And so, yeah, they're there and they do hate the place and they want to get away, but they have somewhat of a moral code. They want to kind of solve the problem. So it's definitely horror. It is lighthearted at times. And also thrown in there as kind of a third leg of the stool is this um, sort of emotional story about the relationship between the, the two main characters who seem to have a very strong relationship, but they're also very different people. So I give, a, I'll give a lot of uh, credit to, uh, to Kyle Starks for making, giving them very distinct voices and having them at least to the first two issues be very authentic to those voices, which even though as much as they love each other can cause stress, especially in times of trauma. And they're definitely going through some tra traumatic times right now. So 
it's interesting. I'm not completely in love with it, uh, but I'm definitely on board for another issue and we'll see. I'm not sure if it's a mini or whatnot. A um, lot of questions to be answered still uh, about what might be going on. So I'll definitely keep you up to date when I check out issue three. Uh, okay, up next, more, another Marvel book. It's Immortal X-Men number three. Kieran Gellin is the writer. Lucas Wernock on art. Dijo Lima on colors. Clayton Cowell on letters. Uh, when I got finished reading this particular issue, all I could think was, I don't know that anybody could have followed um, Jonathan Hickman on uh, on X-Men other than Kieran Gellin because they both have big ideas. They take big chances. Kind of, you might say weird ideas big but weird ideas that work um and i feel like kieran is doing a fantastic job of picking up and building on the the seeds of the foundation that hickman uh laid down so th- this issue definitely or the series really definitely focuses on this idea of x-men being immortal now mutants being immortal and you know what is the future are they going to be able to stop the machine uprising are they going to be able to stop Nimrod, um, sentient sentinels? Uh, are they going to be able to actually ensure the future of mutant kind? This is all wrapped up in destiny having been resurrected, Moira being taken off the table, Mr. Sinister plotting his own stuff. So there's a lot of threads. This is big, dense uh, ideas. And it goes back to what I was wondering when. I first read House of X and Powers of Ten, this idea that are you, are you or could you, can you ever go back? Can you ever turn back the clock and go pre-Krakoa? Um, would you want to? Um, because it, it definitely, it, it's the X-Men have never been more segmented, I feel like, from the rest of the Marvel Universe. You know, it's not like they're up there in Westchester, New York, and you're going to randomly have an Avengers X-Men crossover. It's so separate now. Uh, Mutants are seen as so different. Can you ever go back to the classic feel? I would argue you you can't without resetting like all of Marvel history almost, or at least resetting it back to before the X-Men existed. Is that, is this better? I mean, it certainly seems more sophisticated and intricate. Um. And in a way more interesting, but at the same time, it just feels so complicated. And like you need it, you have to read everything in order to to get like there's this seriousness to it. It's it doesn't ever feel like the X Men get to be lighthearted now. They're their own nation, right? And they're still in the foundational years of that nation. And you know, all these decisions hold so much weight. Everything just feels so weighty. I mean, big and you know, important and serious. So it's a different feel for the X-Men these days. And can you ever go back? Would you want to, you know, I don't know the answers to those questions. I go back and forth myself. This certainly hasn't, the fact that this stuff exists, hasn't erased any of the, you know, classic Claremont burn, Claremont Cockrum uh, or Len Reen Cockrum, I should say, but none of the, the Claremont stuff that was done or, or any of that stuff. So you can go back and read that stuff and it can be fun, what have you. But now we have new stories and uh, Kieran Gillen is telling a, a good one. So uh, I just, you know, I almost wish I could just take a peek. Let me take a peek like five years down the road or 10 years down the road. Where are we at with X-Men? Is it still this 
you know, Hick, what Hickman established or has it evolved into something else or even devolved into something, you know, similar to what it was before that? I don't, I don't, obviously I can't see the future, so I can't answer that question, but it is interesting to think about. I also have to mention the Lucas Wernock art is fantastic. This guy's a superstar in the making. I love the line work. Love the emotionality he puts in his work, of the detail. Uh, he, he's just fantastic. So big fan of his. Uh, up next, another image comic. It's the anthology series Silver Coin. Uh, this particular issue is called The Diner. Uh, it's written by James Tynan. Line work and lettering by Michael Walsh, colored by Tony Maria Griffin and Michael Walsh. Um, <laughs> I've said it a ton of times now. James Tynan is one of the best horror writers working in comics these days. I mean, he is so, uh, he's so fantastic. And the story, the diner, um, it leans into everything that's fantastic about the silver coin. If you're not familiar with this anthology book is the only kind of through put in all the stories or through line in all the stories is this cursed silver coin that seems to be passed down or acquired by various people and uh, they sort of make wishes on it or they have other wishes and, and the coin is, is cursed and it, it allows these wishes to come true. Kind of like a monkey's paw, right? In a way you wouldn't want to have happen. Or if the person has sinister ideas, uh, anyway, it gives them the power to carry out these horrible thoughts or horrible wishes or, um, you know, this immorality that the person already has. So, uh, very much like a horrific Twilight Zone kind of thing. Um, and James Tynan, he does a fantastic job. Uh, and you kind of, not a ton of big surprises in this when you sort of see everything coming and you know what's going to go wrong. Um, and that almost makes it worse. The fact that you can see what's going to happen in the story and you want it not to happen, you want it to be avoided, but it, you know the train is on the tracks and it's going to, you know, run into the wall or whatever. Uh, there's no way to avoid it, but it's so compelling. You can't help but keep turning the page. So visceral Michael Walsh art, as always, uh, silver coin is getting a lot of attention and rightfully so. And again, it's coming from somebody who's not a big horror guy. It's really working. So uh, up next, we have Maestro World War M number four. This is the penultimate issue. Peter David is the writer. Herman Peralta on art, Jesus Arbatov on colors, Ariana Mare on letters. We get a big, giant, epic beatdown fight between Hulk and Giganto, who we saw last issue. Namor is out for revenge on Maestro because something the Hulk did resulted in the death of Namor's son and wife. So he's out for revenge, and he decides to take that revenge in the form of Giganto. We've got Doctor's doom trying to manipulate things on the back end we've got um the abomination who was recently uh released from suspended animation on the table as well is he is he an ally of doom is he an ally of namor is he an ally of, of maestro like everybody's kind of out for themselves and they're, <laughs> they're they're sort of fighting over the scraps of the world um and some of them care more about those scraps and some of them care more about revenge and some don't seem to care about anything at all and are just kind of along for the ride. So it, it definitely feels desolate and kind of like a, an end of days story. Um, 
there's not a lot, it's very bleak. There's not a lot of hope, <laughs> you know, not even necessarily anybody who I would consider like a hero or somebody to root for. Right. I mean, it's the, the Hulk's comic. It's the maestro's comic, but he certainly is not a hero. You might go so far as to say he's the protagonist, but yeah, I don't particularly find myself rooting for him. I almost want to root for the abomination of all people, you know? So um, it's definitely been interesting to see Peter David explore the future, possible future of the Marvel universe and, and some of the backstory of the, the maestro before the days of future imperfect, that wonderful two issue series from David and George, uh, the late great George Perez. So I do recommend this. The colors are also done really, really well. I'm anxious to see even more action in the final issue. It looks like we're finally going to get a, a Hulk or Maestro Doom confrontation. So that should be a, a heck of a lot of fun. But if you're fans of that storyline, I, I recommend all the uh, World War or all the Maestro stuff that uh, Peter David's been doing recently. It's been really, really great. Uh, okay, up next we have Miles Morales, Spider-Man. We're up to issue number 39 from writer Saladin Ahmed. Alberto Fochi is the artist, David Curiel on colors, Corey Petit on letters. Uh, I didn't particularly, I've heard the name Albert Fochi before. I know I've seen his art before. It's okay. It's not great. I kind of feel like the, the colors are very muted from David Curiel. I've seen him do brighter colors than this before. And I don't know if it's because, as I mentioned previously, Miles has traveled to this different part of the Marvel multiverse where book Brooklyn is sort of encased in this energy field and miles evil clone sell which is miles backwards uh, is, is in charge and he rules this place with an iron fist and he's horrific and he kills people and whatnot. So it's very kind of down and depressing. And maybe David Curiel felt that brighter colors wouldn't work on this sort of a negative story, but I, I don't know. The whole book just feels like it has this gray pallor over it and the color work. It doesn't, it doesn't look good to me. It feels like washed out um, and it's not suiting the, the action packed beats of the story because this is really action packed as uh, Peter's hooked up with his old or, or miles rather is hooked up with his old friend Ganky and he's joined the, the rebellion against Selim. So interesting hook here. Uh, I talked before when this um, story arc started, I'm not a big fan. I feel like, Miles works better as a street level character. I'm not a big fan of having him hopping around different dimensions. Um, that being said, this does feel like, you know, more of a, a rather than this cosmic story because it's up going against Selim and because it's a ragtag group of rebels, um, freedom fighters, whatever you want to call them, that's going up against Selim. It does feel sort of visceral and, you know, in your face and kind of street level. Um, if you just forget about the dimensional stuff, um, but it's kind of hard to, because it you know pops up every other panel for one reason or another, but I'm still enjoying this. I'm still enjoying the, the voice that Saladin Ahmed gives miles. So, uh, any complaints I have are, are sort of minor because I am, I am enjoying it, but I, I am also looking forward to miles getting back home to his multiverse and, you know, seeing some more grounded stories, him, uh, dealing with stuff at home and at school and dating and some street level villains and, you know, a little bit more classic Spider-Man stuff. So, uh, all right. Up next, we have Moon Knight. We're up to issue number 12, written by Jed McKay. Art is by Alessandro Capuccio. Colors by Rochelle Rosenberg. Letters by Corey Petit. We saw 
Mark Spector make a deal with Conchu for a, a later favor. I'm sure that's going to come back to bite him in the end. Uh, but it does allow him to get where he needs to go and face off against the Zodiac and save uh, his friends. Uh, but at the end, there's a little bit of a twist that really surprised me because when we had Jed McKay on the show, he talked about not leaning into certain aspects of the Moon Knight character. And if you've listened to that interview, you know what I'm talking about. So you may be surprised, as surprised as I am uh, for the twist at the end. I don't know how I feel about it yet. I'm going to wait and see how the next issue goes. Uh, the Capuccio art, I've talked before about how it's stylized and it, it definitely gives a horror feel. I mean, most of this book takes place at night. It's moon night. Um, and it does work on that level. And, and certainly the colors really help. The whites seem to glow when they're coming off the page here. So that, that visual aesthetic is great from Michelle Rosenberg. But kind of be honest, um, the stylized uh, look of the art, I'm, I'm kind of over it at this point. I'm ready to see something else. Um, I, I don't know. Just, I guess the style of art just got old for me. It's not, it's not a style I can read for an extended period of time. Uh, it's just, I don't know. There's something about the, the lines um, and the rendering that it just, it's a little, it feels a little incomplete to me. And it, it gets to me after a while. So, uh, but again, that's just a personal preference. So uh, up next, we have number eight, Newburn. They Know Me, written by Chip Zdarsky, art by Jacob Phillips. Uh, absolutely fantastic. So good. We get resolution um, for uh, for Newburn, Newburn and uh, his protege, Emily. Um, and during that, we find out that we see Newburn, at least I did, in a different light. You know, first of all, the fact that he, you know, wants his protege because he comes across early on in the series as sort of very blase about her, you know, like he could take her or leave her. But he goes through substantial effort here to help her out. So does that mean he cares? Does that mean he has some connection to her that we don't know about? Or does that mean he just doesn't want to go through the hassle of training another assistant? So, uh, there's other aspects of him that we're, we're forced to confront or we're, where we don't necessarily get all the answers, but we're shown um, that there's more, maybe more to Newburn than we thought. Uh, and this is the last issue for a while. It says it's not coming back till fall of 2022. So I think they're taking a little bit of a break, but this is crime noir at its best. It's great character work from Zdarsky, very visceral art from Jacob Phillips. So. Um, it's one of the best new series of the year without question. Highly, highly recommend. So I think, I think the first issue might've come out last year, but anyway, it's a, it's a new, it's a relatively new series, less than a year old and uh, it's firing on all cylinders. So do recommend. Uh, all right. We have the end of another arc as well for a creator owned book. Um, I think it's the end. Pretty sure. It's Noctera number 11 from writer Scott Snyder, Tony S. Daniel on art. Marcella Maiello on colors and uh, letters by Ann World Design. There's some big beats and big swings in this story. Um, we get sort of a resolution or or we you get the answer to the question that, hey, is it a good idea that Blacktop Bill joined the Sundog Calvary uh, or, or uh, Convoy rather, Sundog Convoy? 
like we get some answers about that or some hints about that. Anyway, we get uh, some really great moments for, uh, for Val and M it's action packed. Um, it's got moments in it that you really are going to want to, if you're a fan of Nocturia, you're really going to want to take your time to read this and absorb it. Um, and you're going to end up finishing the issue and going, okay, I, I immediately need to know what happens next because, um, we're left with a bit of a cliffhanger. Uh, so I, I thought it was fantastic. I feel like every time an issue of Noctera comes out, I'm like, okay, this is the best issue. There's no way they can top this. And then the next issue comes out. And uh, I mean, Tony Daniel has been on top of his game from issue one. So I don't know that his art really can improve anymore. You know, he's already at the top of the mountain. So when I'm talking about the, the story getting better and better at each issue, it's obviously you know, the story itself and how intimate we've come to know these characters, how much Snyder and Daniel have made us really care for them and then putting them in danger and giving us some real stakes um, and consequences to people's choices just makes it a really, really compelling read. So I think Noctera it definitely deserves to win some awards. It's so good. Uh, okay. Up next, another Marvel book, Punisher original blitz number one. Uh, this is, I, I guess, a companion to the regular series. Uh, it's written by Torin Gronbeck. Lan Medina does the art. Antonio Fabella on colors. Corey Petit on letters. I don't have a whole lot to say about this because I can't talk about it in detail without spoiling. But um, it picks up some threads that we saw in the regular Punisher title. Maybe Jason Aaron didn't have enough room there. So we get the resolution of, of one of the storylines that we've already seen in the regular Punisher book uh, finished up here. Torin Gronbuck, um, as writer, she gives us a real no-nonsense Frank Castle, which I really appreciate, uh, but yet finds ways to give us little glimpses into uh, his emotional side, um, which, you know, he comes across as very stoic in the, uh, the Jason Aaron uh, series. So getting a little bit more emotionality out of uh out of Frank Castle is a good thing. And the land Medina art is absolutely fantastic. So definite, definite must read for Punisher fans. You are going to really enjoy what goes down in that issue. There's plenty of action, plenty of bad guys, you know, get their due. Uh, and that's about all I can say. So uh, up next we have radiant red. We're up to issue number four of five. This is written by Cherish Chen. David Lafuente is the artist. Colors are by Miguel Muerto, letters by Diego Sanchez. We know that Radiant Red has agreed to this like corporate, I don't want to say hijacking, corporate espionage. It's because I mean they are trying to sneak in, but they're trying to steal something from this uh, one particular lab. Um, and that's going to get Radiant Red um, out from under the debt that she's uh, that her boyfriend is, you know, gambling debts and whatnot. And that's why she went and robbed the banks, but then couldn't use the money because it was all marked. And um, so, I mean, this is just a very, a very intimate look. I mean, we get more of the character work and relationship work and the feel of being trapped and whatnot in this book than, uh, than the actual pages of, actual radiant red, you know, her being in the costume, uh, Satomi in the costume. So uh, I actually like that because I think 
the strength of this book is in the relationships, the relationship between Satomi and her boyfriend, between uh, Satomi and her family, between Satomi and the, the reporter that showed up at her doorstep, a cliffhanger ending last time where she shows up on Satomi's doorstep and says, I want to ask you questions about Radiant Red. Um, so we find out what that's all about in this particular issue, but it really fits into the, the massive verse and the aesthetic that Kyle Higgins and, um, and Ryan Parrott and, and Matt Kroom are creating. Uh, but, but it also stands on its own. You don't need to be reading any of that other stuff to, to get a fantastic story in its own right here. So uh, uh, I'm really enjoying it. And the David LaFuente art, it is, uh, it's a little cartoonish, but it works for kind of the voice that Satomi has that, uh, that Cherish Chen gives her. So, uh, all right. Up next, another Marvel book. It's the end of Silver Surfer Rebirth with issue number five from writer Ron Mars. Ron Lim is the penciler. Don Ho on inks. Israel Silva on colors. Joe Sabino on letters. This has been a fantastic series throughout. The um, the nostalgia factor is high, and that's no different in this final issue. Um, I will say that the ending, I, I won't say that it's predictable, but it's not anything surprising either. Like it goes about the way that you would expect. There are a couple of really cool moments. And at the end of the day, seeing this gorgeous Ron Lim art back on Silver Surfer and Thanos and Tyrant and the, the wonderful bright cosmic colors that we get uh, make this worth it. You know, it's a, it's exactly what you expect it to be. And while it's not, uh, you know, really surprising or there's not any crazy twists. Uh, it's, it's, it's like, it's almost like comfort food, right? Like it's eating, it's eating like this really um, great hamburger that you, you know, you used to eat all the time growing up, you know, maybe at a particular place in your hometown. Um, and yeah, you know exactly what to expect. And when you go back, you eat it and it fills you up and it makes you happy. And it's as you remember, and it's just, it's, comfort um and it doesn't make it any less good that you've had it before or that you knew exactly what it was going to taste like there's comfort in that um and yeah the art by ron Lim just just fantastic this was so fun really enjoyed um revisiting that that era uh in this kind of um, standalone story and by standalone story i mean it doesn't feel connected to the marvel universe you don't need to read anything else to understand what's going on here. It's really a timeless story. It doesn't feel set in one era or the other. Um, if anything, any kind of era that it's tied to uh, is only because of um, the fact that it, it, it is Ron Mars and Ron Lim and they were this, you know, the surfer creative team in the late nineties. So it feels of that era a little bit, but it also, it, I've talked about it before. It has somewhat of a modern feel because obviously comics were made differently back then than now. So uh, it just works on a lot of levels and I do, do recommend it. So uh, last book I'm going to talk about in detail is rogue son number five. Uh, I hope you guys all had a chance to listen to my chat with Ryan Parrott uh, that we had uh, last week. We went deep into spoilers with uh, with issue four and the revelation in issue four that Dylan's mother was the one that killed his father. Ryan talked about how the series is really an explanation of um, or exploration of um, 
people getting a divorce and we really start to see that and expectations that you had for these characters and impressions that you may have had of them start to change, or at least they did for me. Um, you know, maybe, maybe the mom Gwen isn't the goody goody she appears. Maybe his dad wasn't as bad as he thought and poor Dylan is stuck in the middle and you start to have an understanding of why Dylan is the way that he is, why he's this bully, why he's this punk. You don't forgive it, but you understand it. So again, please go and listen to that conversation that I had with Ryan because it sheds a lot of light on this particular issue. So read the issue, then go listen to the conversation or listen to the conversation first and then read the issue and you'll you'll get more out of it that way. Either way, I think it works. And I'm, I'm loving Rogue Sun. It's, it's so much more than just a superhero comic. And we did get a different artist. Abel is the normal artist. Uh, he did get some help on this one by Simone Ragazzoni, uh, Natalie Marquez on colors, Becca Carry on letters. Uh, and basically what Ryan says in the back is that, um, that Abel just needed more time to concentrate on issue number six, which apparently has a lot of stuff going on in it. So uh, appreciate Simone, you know, filling in here. His style is similar enough to Abel's that it's, it's not jarring. And uh, the color work is done really well by Natalie Marquez as well. Um, just a regular colorist, Chris O'Halloran had some, some stuff going on uh, as well. So, uh, so Natalie filled in, but it's a great series. I'm a big fan of it. Go listen to my chat with Ryan. Uh, Cause you'll get a lot more out of the series uh, after you do so. Uh, all right. So in addition to those books, I'm going to give a rundown on some other stuff you might want to be on the lookout for. From Aftershock, Cross the Bear Trade Paperback is out uh, this week over at Boom. We've got Magic, the Hidden Planeswalker, number three of four, as well as Something is Killing the Children, number 24, which has a really cool die cut cover. Uh, also from Al Ewing, We Only Find Them When They're Dead is up to issue number 11. Uh, over at uh, Dark Horse, we've got Shaolin Cowboy, Cruel to Be Kin, number two of seven. That's Jeff Darrow uh, with his super hyper detailed art. I know a lot of people are big Jeff Darrow fans, myself included. Uh, over at DC, again, you can hear about these in our DC Spotlight. Aquaman and the Flash Void Song, number one, really blew me away. I was very impressed. Batman Superman, World's Finest, number four, had one of the best not just DC comics moments, but best comic moments in, in years. It was so fun and fantastic. Uh, Batman, the night number six of 10 is out black Adam. Number one from Christopher priest and Rafa Sandoval Catwoman is up to issue number 44 from writer, Tinny Howard. And I will say that with Harley in the book, it feels more like a Harley book than a Catwoman book. Almost um, dark crisis, young justice, number one of six, we have duo number two. Of six over in the milestone corner of the DCU, uh, Earth Prime number six, his six heroes Twilight, which is telling stories in the CW verse. Fables is up to number one forty two. Uh, Flash number seven eighty three, my favorite DC book of the week. Uh, I think Jeremy Adams is just doing stellar work. One of the best Flash runs in decades. So good. Uh, we've got uh, milestones in history number one, which I, I really really enjoyed. It's 100 pages. It's true stories of persons of color throughout history written by some uh, really well-known, not just comic book writers, but like scholars and authors and uh, persons in academia. Uh, I really think that book needs to be read by everybody. 
it sheds so much light on our history. A lot of times true stories are even more compelling than fiction. And uh, I hope that book uh, is read by a lot of people and inspires people and makes them curious to go learn more about these uh, important figures in our, in our, uh, not just our nation's history, but the history of the world. Uh, Nightwing is out as well. Number 93. And finally, Superman's pal, Jimmy Olsen's boss, Perry White, number one. That's I know it's a mouthful. It's Superman's pal, Jimmy Olsen's boss, which is Perry White, number one. One shot, two new stories, three reprints was a heck of a lot of fun. Uh, over at IDW, we have Canto Volume 3, Lionhearted, trade paperback coming out. Uh, at Image, in addition to the books that I talked about, We've got Gunslinger Spawn, number nine, Homesick home sick Pilots, number 15. And then there's a ZVRC Zombies versus Robots classic, number four of four, finishing off that series. Uh, from Marvel, uh, we've got Knights of X, number three. We've got Marvel Voices Pride special, number one. The new Fantastic Four, number one of five, is kicking off. With uh, that new version of Fantastic Four, there's what Ghost Rider, Wolverine, Hulk, and Spider Man, I think. So that's out. We've got New Mutants number 26, uh, Star Wars Crimson Rain number five, and finally X Men number 12 is also out from uh, from Marvel this week. Over at Titan, Cowboy Bebop number four, Valiant has Armor Clads number four of five. And I think that's going to do it. Uh, Jay's not here to give us the more obscure <laughs> publishing stuff that he reads, uh, but that's going to do it for this episode. So I uh, really hope you guys enjoyed it. Pre- appreciate the support as always. I hope you get a chance to get out and pick up some comics this week, uh, especially DC books. I mean, it, it felt like one of the best weeks of DC comics in years. Almost every comic was uh, all but one felt way above average. And, and even that one was probably a little above average was my least favorite, but still was a, a good book. Uh, but most of them were, were great to excellent. So uh, pick up some comics, do some reading. San Diego Comic-Con's coming up soon. Hope to see some of you there. So again, I uh, appreciate the support as always, and we'll talk to you next time. You can find the Comic Source Podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, or whichever podcasting app you prefer. Please tell all your friends about us, subscribe, and rate us. The ratings really help with our visibility and our ability to reach new listeners, especially five-star reviews on Apple. Also be sure to visit us at lrmonline.com to join the conversation, access the show notes, and discover all our other great pop culture content. If you want to email us, the email address is thecomicsourceblog at gmail.com, or you can follow us on Twitter, twitter.com forward slash thecomicsource. Do a search for The Comic Source on Facebook and Instagram to follow us on those social platforms. All three spots are great places to find out when we release new episodes as well as follow all our convention coverage. So once again, we want to thank everyone for listening, and we'll talk to you next time.